Hello, friends, family, and loved ones. It is your favorite true crime experts really? and Emily. Oh. <laughs> oh my God, we are back, and I've had and I just went <laughs> hoarse all of a sudden. I've had a hell of a day today. Ew. We are in my closet recording this, and I'm finally having a chance to breathe because today, on my journey from Dallas to Houston, my bumper or undercarriage <laughs> decided to just fall off from the bottom of my car, and I pulled over. And I gave it a tug, and I yanked on it, and it just didn't budge. So then I was like, well, I'm just going to try to drive on it. Baby, sure enough, the bitch got sucked up underneath my car. I pulled into this rinky-dink hillbilly station, and they helped me, so I'm never going to be mean to these people again. And, yeah, so now my bumper is in my car, and here we are. We are bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. Do that is so weird. Do you think that there were, like, sparks flying out from your car no, when you were driving? No, I thought that, too. I was actually more concerned that it was going to uh, gash my tire, and then that we would have a whole nother fucking, like, issue. I would have never pulled into that gas station, because I would just... When you're telling me this story, I'm thinking of Jeepers Creepers, the movie. If it was at night, definitely wouldn't have, but... Um, it was. I was desperate. I was halfway point between Dallas and Houston. There was. I was in this little town called Buffalo. There, the closest car dealership was ninety eight miles away. <laughs> um, so I was kind of like, I walked into here and they're literally wearing overalls, and I'm like, hi. I'm like bronzed, honey, and just <laughs> hair gorgeous blonde, and I'm like, hello. No, first of all, nobody greeted me when I walked in. I was like, hi, who do I speak to? And they're like. I was like, my bumper is like dragging, and he was like, he was like, do you want a sledgehammer? I was like, uh, sure. But they helped me, and here we are. I'm here just, we are. Do you think they're telling this story at the dinner table? I don't give a fuck what they're telling me. The I'm here, and I'm safe, okay. and I'm sound, honey. I don't know about sound, but okay. it was almost a true crime. I felt been. like it could have been. If it was at night, I would have shat myself. But enough about me. For once. <laughs> For once. Guys, we have a Patreon if you didn't know. <laughs> and the link is in our Instagram bio. And if you can't get enough of us during the week, we do have an exclusive episode posted. Um, and it's bad to the ass. And you should go check it out. So... Yeah, one of you 500 that listened to the Jinko episode. I mean, come on. Yeah, come on, baby. Come on. And we were get, we are going to be doing more and more episodes on Patreon. So, you know, just trust the Duchess and go subscribe. You can just do... If you do the $20 package, you get a free t-shirt, which leads me into my next discussion. Our t-shirt image is finalized and gorgeous we just have to change emily's shoes on it she wanted to wear doc martens on it not slippers but um so we're waiting on that but y'all it is so fucking fierce i'm gonna post it then we'll post the link to where you can order it and boom baby boom you're gonna be going to work with misery manor on your chest honey please don't please do and yeah so we are excited and i will post that photo soon okay on instagram at misery manor podcast and send in emails for stories. We really want to do another um, another email episode, but we oh, need yeah. to kind of, like, have a theme. So we need to get enough of them to where we can kind of yeah. flow them. Mm-hmm. The first one was more ghost 
paranormal or, type right. situation. So if you have, yeah, oh my God, you should send us stories about you having car issue and having some scary situations. Like, like something went wrong on like a camping trip, something like that. Yeah, you or know? like when you murdered someone, you know, whatever. Any of those, we won't tell. You can keep it anonymous. Or yeah. is it unanimous? Unanimous? Anonymous. Um, yes. Anonymous. Anonymous. Unanimous means like everybody voted. Oh. Unanimously. Not that one. Okay, so yeah, there's all that. So I'm going to be getting into my case. So grab your titties, get your coffee, get your wine, do what you got to do, and just relax, honey, because this case is wild and it's not like one that we've done before because y'all little nasties love the junko and all that torture stuff (laughs) so this one's not quite like that but this one is insane so this is so i'm not going to give it away just yet in the title but i'm just going to say a lot of people call this the cannibal mountain tale um and this is about a group of people that were stranded in the andes mountains for 72 days okay So this story takes place October of 1972. Now, like I said, this story takes place in the Andes Mountains. Now, the Andes Mountains is one of the longest mountain ranges in the world. It spans across seven different countries in South America, and the average height of the mountain is about 13,000 feet tall. So just to give a perspective, that's about 1,300 floor building. So can you imagine 1300 floors? floors so there's not one but i'm just giving you perspective like you've been on the highest which is like what is the highest building you've been in like floor wise i don't know like i remember one of my old clients was on the 28th floor and it like oversaw like almost all of houston pretty much so think of a building that has 1300 floors that would be like the high, one of the highest points in the no. andes mountains so tall so um, the highest point of this mountain is actually in Argentina, and it's tw- uh, 23,000 feet above sea level. So these are huge mountains. So this mountain range is crazy. The Amazon River actually starts here, and it was formed 140 million years ago. Now, the climate is known to change drastically just within miles. So you can be in this like lush tropical rainforest and then three miles west be in a snow-covered blizzard mountain. So it just changes, boom, boom, boom. It has very different ecosystems um, and you never know what you're gonna get. This mountain range also has one of the tallest volcanoes. Oh, wow. So you're getting a lot, you're getting cold, you're getting volcanoes, you're getting rivers, you're getting all sorts of crazy shit in these mountains all at once. So. I'm sure you're thinking, well, I would never hike or climb those mountains, so I'm good. But even flying across these mountains is dangerous. So just like in a commercial flight, just like in a helicopter, whatever it may be, is severely like, dangerous. So you don't just have to be hiking it for it to be dangerous. Even going through it um, by a plane is very, very, very dangerous. Do they do that regularly? They have to because it's so large. It expands over so many um, countries that they have to go through it or over it. Have you ever flown over it? No, I've never even been over there. Oh. They said it's worse than like the Bermuda Triangle, which that is that really not? yeah. Oh yeah, it's bad. Well, I guess it depends on like what time of the year, but yes, there's been a lot, and I'm going to go into it. But there's been a lot of issues with it. So, so if your plane goes through this, you're going to experience a lot of turbulence, so fierce that you're like tossed around like a rag doll. Um, which leads us to our story today. So one particular plane did just this. It had a group of 15 rugby players on it, and they were traveling from Uruguay to Chile. So the boys were ranged from 17 to 26 years old, and also aboard this flight was 25 of their friends and family of the players, five crew members, so in all, 45 passengers. 
Okay. Um, the plane they were in decided to cross the mountain range and enter into Chile. So the plane they were in were set, was set to leave around 1 p.m. that evening, and the pilot's plan was just to fly over the turbulence, like over the mountains, and it shouldn't be an issue at all. He was like, I'll just go extra high, avoid all that turbulence, we'll be good to go. So the aircraft that they were in was actually an Air Force heavy-duty aircraft that was given to them from, from Uruguay. And because of this, the aircraft um, cannot stand on foreign soil for more than 24 hours. So they had already had a layover from bad weather, so they were a little rushed and pressed for time to get them there. Um, so if they didn't go ahead and head to Chile, they would have to go all the way back to Uruguay and then start the process over again. Because the minute that the plane left Uruguay, the 24-hour count mark started. So if they wanted to regain that t um, time back from the layover, they would have to go back and then start again Wait, because what? it was a military um, plane. Oh. Yeah. So <clears throat> they had some words from other pilots who had just cro crossed the mountain range, and they were like, oh, don't even worry about it. There was no turbulence when we just did it. You'll be fine. One of the pilots even suggested, they were like, hey, you should just take this shortcut. And here's what uh, I did. Uh. I just did it. It was fine. You'll get there a lot quicker. It'll save you some time. Um, so, like, yeah, he was like, you should totally do it. And here's how it was. And here's, like, the path that I went. Um, he also was like, dude, you have a heavy-duty aircraft, like, military grade. I just have some cargo planes. So you'll be more than fine. If I can do it, you can definitely do it. So given this confidence boost, the pilot and the crew board the plane. And the boys start going crazy. They're like... Hit, um, screaming, they're hollering, they're so excited. This is like their vacation. They're like throwing rugby balls around. Some are like starting to play cards. Some are celebrating. They're singing. They're dancing. They are pumped to get to Chile for their rugby match. Come to find out, though, they did not take the the pilot's word for the shortcut. Um, okay. They just stuck to their safe way. He was like, "I know this route. We should be fine. I'm just going to do it this way." And right when they hit the mountain range, they started to experience turbulence, like almost instantly. And he was like, "Oh shit!" So for whatever reason, though, the passengers were not disturbed about the turbulence at all, though, they, which they should be, because months prior, an entire cargo plane with six passengers was completely missing, and to the day, the plane has never been found, and all of the six members were dead, or they assume. But that didn't phase the guys. They're just chilling. They're not phased. They're not worried about the turbulence. One of the guys even grabs a hold of the intercom, and he goes, <clears throat> Ladies and gentlemen, we have hit turbulence. Please put on your parachutes and get ready to jump. <gasps> like, as a joke. And everyone's, like, laughing. But, mm -hmm. So That's shortly the after this, they, so shortly after that, they hit, hit this huge air pocket, and the plane drops several hundred feet. Now, I would have been fucking freaking out. I was the... like, this is a bad story for the both of us. Right. <laughs> so, the, oh, my are... God. On our trip, we <laughs> both had diarrhea and anxiety. So, <laughs> here we are. But for the most part, the boys were just like, whoa, and then just kind of kept calm. Shoot. So, Nando, who was, well, he, so, Nando, just remember that name. He's going to play a pivotal role in this case. He was sitting in one of the aisle seats, and he was a little bit nervous. And his friend was the one in the window seat. And his friend tapped Nando and said, dude, look out my window. Is it normal to be this close to the mountain range? Oh, my God. And he kind of laughed it off. Like, <laughs> and Nando looked out the uh, window and he said that the, the tip of the wing was no more than 10 feet from the mountain range. Oh, my God. So Nando responds, no, I don't think so. So right about as he said that, the engine started roaring. The plane started vibrating. The plane tries to go higher to avoid the mountain range, but right, the right wing of the plane came crashing into the mountain and completely breaks off. Shit. The plane starts spinning. The tail of the plane hits the mountain range, and the back of the plane then completely breaks off as well. 
what does this mean? There is a huge gaping hole in the back of the plane now. So because of this, people start falling out and getting sucked out of the back of the plane. The flight attendant, the navigator, and three of the boys all get sucked out of the back. And the three boys were still seat seat belted into Mm -hmm. their seats as they left, as they fell. As they left. Well, they did leave. So moments later, the left wing gets broken off and a blade from the propeller rips into the main cabin of the plane. Inside the airplane, people are crying, they're screaming, they're praying, they're holding on for dear life. This plane has no wings, no tail end, and they're headed straight into a mountain. A snow-covered mountain in the middle of the Andes. When the propeller went through, did it, like, chop anybody? No, not that I know of. Thank God. So, um... So as this is happening, two more boys get sucked out of the airplane, um, which makes matters even more difficult. All of the seats became dismounted. Therefore, all of the seats were pushed towards the front of the plane, crushing all of the passengers in its path. So every seat was becoming dislodged and slamming into the row in front of it. And people were getting trapped. Um, The captain is doing everything in his power to position the plane for a smooth landing. And by the grace of God, instead of slamming into the mountains, the plane lands on its belly on a snow-covered mountainside and just kind of torpedoed until it came to a halt. Okay, so seven people have been sucked out. Yeah, Yeah. I think so. So just like that, they safely landed, but all of a sudden, they felt these cold winds rush into the cabin. The passengers were by no means prepared for this weather at all. Um, They did not pack to be in the cold you know they're wearing shorts and they're going to chili yeah so the weather was negative 40 degrees shut up i swear oh my god yep and they are about i think seventy thousand or seven thousand feet up so they're pretty high so the cabin for the most part was completely silent the passengers that were not passed that did not pass away from the crash were stuck between all of the plastic the metals and the seats being all stuck together they tried standing up and pushing and removing the objects but it was too much One of the passengers, who was a med student, was able to remove himself from the cluster and immediately started screaming, Help us! Help us! Jesus! Jesus! Please help us! Uh, Note, a lot of these boys were Roman Catholic, which you'll hear more and more about this throughout. So, um, a lot of the passengers could be here um, praying Hail Mary. Is that? Yeah. But I feel like he's the one that could be helping if he's a nurse. He's going to do that. That was just like his first go-to, just like scream for help. So, And they didn't know where they were. So at first, the cabin was silent, but it starts to come alive. You could hear moans and groans and then slowly prayers and crying and screaming. People were uh, shrieking, um, screaming bloody murder. They were like, help me, help me, help me. I don't want to die. So the cabin just became engulfed in people screaming for help. The passengers that were able to stand started to help the other passengers in need that were trapped under all the debris. Mm -hmm. They found their team uh, captain Marcelo first and helped him out. And these guys trusted him on the field and off the field. He was a great guy and they knew that he would be able to rally everybody together, help with the morale and just get a game plan in place. So Marcelo brushes himself uh, uh, off and immediately makes a game plan being the captain that he is. And he says, okay, how many medical students do we have here? Get up. We need you guys safe and alive so that you can help attend to the injuries. So the medical students that were on board had just a couple of years of schooling Uh, But at this point in their schooling, the majority of the learnings that they had were only in psychology and sociology. They hadn't quite dug into the medical aspect of it. However, the medical students said that they knew more than most, and they took leads as medics. Okay. They started examining the bodies, and they were pulling them out of the debris. The first dead body came across with Eugene Credo. She had been crushed on impact and was pronounced dead. Mm -hmm. Um, She was the mother of uh, Nando, the guy that I mentioned earlier. 
Did he get sucked out? No. So two other passengers died instantly from the impact, one of them being a doctor for the team, which was like shit, and his wife. The guy started filling around, checking pulses, and tried to get people out of their seats without doing, you know, more damage Mm -hmm. or hurting people trapped underneath all of it. One of the guys had his calf completely ripped off, and it was wrapped around his leg (gasps) bone like a scarf. His bones were completely exposed, and they had to bind it together with the white shirt. That's all that they had. Okay, wait, wait. The calf was... Like, the calf muscle was hanging by ligaments, so they just wrapped it around his leg bone like a scarf. So it was just dangling. And instead of it dangling, they just wrapped it around. Which, I guess, the scarf thing kind of was good. They're cool. (laughs) So... So, to make matters worse, a couple of the guys started running out of the plane, and all of a sudden, the few passengers say, what is that smell? Someone farted. No, before you know it, people are screaming, we have a gas leak. Oh, this thing Jesus is, Christ. They're like, this thing is going to blow. Get out, get out. So, like, these people are, like, hawk, like trying to, like, you know, crawl, bear crawl, get out, do whatever. So, they're rushing people out. Come on, come on, come on, come on. We got to get out of here. We got to get out of here. And they're doing the best they can to rush all the people to the back of the plane to jump off into the snow. So they all jump off and find themselves waist deep or chest deep in snow. That's and they how, have like on rugby that's, outfits. Yeah, and that's how deep it was. So there, this was the point where it came real to them that they were truly isolated. Because they are just engulfed by snow. They look around, there's just snow-covered mountains. There's not a road. There's not a building. There's not a house in sight. They don't see even any birds flying. They don't see any grass, nothing. Just them and snow-covered mountains. But this is my question. They're in a military aircraft. I mean, no one's like, hey, like talking to them. Through, like, the radio? Yeah. So we're going to get to that because it, you, yes, we're about to get to that. Okay. So they were 7,000 feet up in the mountain. And just to put this into perspective again, that's about 700 stories high. So Mm. once they realized the plane was not going to catch fire or blow up, it was just a smell like a gas leak or like a chemical leak. The passengers went back into um, the aircraft to help uncover more hidden bodies. Now, a lot of their luggage had been sucked out of the back of the plane. So some guys who uh, tried walking in the waist high snow and to try to retrieve them. And as they're walking, they see one of their friends off in the distance, one of the ones that had fell from the plane. Um, and he's not dead. <gasps> so they're like, Carlos, Carlos. They start waving their arms. But the wind and the snow was so severe that he couldn't even see or hear them. Uh-uh. So the boys said that they could see him panicking for the plane, like looking around, looking left, looking right, looking up, looking like all different directions, but he couldn't see the plane. The snow was so white and so was the plane that it all just blended in. So the boys would eventually see Carlos walk away in the exact opposite direction. Stop. They would They would later find him dead. Stop. I know. And he was right there. Fuck. Oh my god, I hate this so much. So we will be um, I driving. I will be fucking Carlos. <laughs> so, true. So one of the boys had a still pipe sticking out of his stomach. So he runs up to Roberto, which was one of the med students, and he's like, "Hey, Roberto, Roberto, what do I do about this? It really, <laughs> it really, really hurts." So Roberto was like trying to keep the morale high on the plane. So he was like, "Oh, buddy, like don't even worry about it." It's not that bad off. I don't need you to worry. Don't freak out. Just come here really quickly. And Roberto proceeds to rip the still bar out of his body. And just as he did that, don't scream at this part because you're going to ruin it. Out came six inches of his intestines. Now you can scream. Oh, my God. (laughs) So they tie him up with one of his shirts. And the boys proceeded to go like. So, oh, wait, I'm sorry. I read that wrong. So they tied him up. 
and he didn't cry he didn't do anything they stitched like they tied him up and he went to go help his friends and kind of uncover more bodies I'm like, good for you, babe, because I'd have said, just end it right here. Pull it out, <laughs> and you're going to find a cheeseburger in the main distance. <laughs> oh, my God. So, one of the guys, Pedro, did not get that hurt. Okay, this is a crazy part. So, Pedro did not get that hurt physically from the impact. Um, and he, so, he made his way over to the chairs, and he starts lifting them up, like, moving people. But every few minutes, he would go, where are we? Fuck. And the boys were like, what? What do you mean? We're on the plane. Why are we on a plane? Pedro, what? We're on the plane headed to our rugby match and it just crashed. Rugby match? Who plays rugby? He would start lifting the chairs up and then minutes later, where are we? So he had severe, like, Like brain trauma. Yeah, like Dory. So eventually the boys were able to get the majority of the wounded out, but there were still quite a few stuck within the, the debris. That were alive, that mm-hmm. they thought? Well, that they... Some were alive. Yeah. Or, okay. So they decided to take out all of the wounded and lay them outside in the snow so that they can rest, not be cramped up, get some fresh air. Um, and they started taking the chairs out one by one to help the others that were trapped. And these are people they know. Family. So friends. Some they know. So I'm going to get to that, too. Okay. So the boys keep telling everyone, hey, this is only temporary. Just remember that. We're going to be rescued soon. Don't even worry. Our plane is no longer contacting air traffic control. They will be able to see where we lost contact. It's easy peasy. Don't worry. So one of the passengers said, don't you think it would be easier if we contact them and let them know some details on our whereabouts instead of just assuming that they're coming to to rescue us? You know, it's faster. Where is the radio so that we can get the signal? Can we just talk about how we were talking about your car earlier? I know, right? This would be me. (laughs) The boys were like, oh, the cockpit. So the gang, like, rushes over to the cockpit to retrieve the radio. And the door is jammed shut. Of course it is. And they were were like, there's no getting into it. They tried jerking on it, all that good stuff. There was no getting in. So the boys decide to try and enter the plane from the outside. Mm -hmm. The snow was so deep that they immediately just sank waist deep. They decided to take seat seat cushions and hop from, like, they would... Throw one, hop on it, throw it again, hop on it to enter the window. And this is when they noticed. The pilot and the co-pilot were still trapped inside the cockpit. They both had metal rods sticking from their chest so they couldn't move or help the boys in any way. The main pilot was dead, but the co-pilot was screaming and begging for help. Help me, help me, please, please, please save me. And he was going in and out of consciousness as well. The boys were able to get get up there to help them, but there was not much that they could do. The metal rod would be too dangerous to uh, remove, and it was bounding him to the chair. So, like, it went through the chair, mm-hmm. so he was stuck to it. They removed the back seat cushion to provide a little bit of, like, um, relief to his chest, but yeah. that's all that they could do. Like pressure. So, the cries of, like, help me, help me, stopped, and the co-pilot said, okay, can y'all come here real quick, real serious? And he goes, can you please please go to my suitcase and get me my revolver. Fuck. And the boys were like, why would we do that? And he's like, boys, I'm in a lot of pain. I'm going to re- die regardless. Can you please hand me my revolver? You're the only one that can get it, please. And the boys said, no, we're Roman Catholic. We cannot help you commit suicide. We cannot do that. So the boys just try to make him feel better. The co-pilot did tell the boys that the radio was dead and destroyed on impact. So he was just like, I'm sorry, I just, I don't know what to tell you. I don't know what to tell you. Negative Nancy. So around 6 p.m., negative Nancy, bitch, he's got a thing through his chest. More like painful Patty. 
<laughs> so around 6 p.m., the temperature was well below freezing, and the boys checked the wounded survived, um, and they only had a total of 32 out of the 45 still alive. Okay. The guys were keeping the morale high, and they said, hey, it's nighttime. There's no way that they're going to rescue us during the uh, night. This is just one night. We'll be good in the morning. No biggie. And they're freezing. They're freezing. But they're able to stay inside the cockpit, which it's not warm, but it's not the harsh weather outside, right? But it's still, a lot of it is still exposed. Right. So now I'm going to get into, like, who these guys are, more detail. So I'm going to pause there, okay? Okay. Oh, I'm sorry. And I just want to note. So they thought that they were going to be rescued the next morning. But they were wrong. They're not going to be rescued for another 72 days with only 16 of them surviving. So at this point, there's 32. So about 15 more are going to die. Half. 16 and 16 is 16 um, with only 16 of them surviving. So So half of them are going to die. It's like when you're in a assembly and they're like look to your left look look to, to your, your right. right one of you will be addicted to drugs by the time you're 18 or something like that right exactly so now let's get into who these guys are because okay. you know i like to do that so that you can feel more connected to them so a lot of these boys graduated from the same college stella maris college and the boys played for a rugby team outside of school okay. two irish brothers founded this college and they were obsessed with rugby they moved to uruguay and couldn't figure out why this country was so obsessed with soccer they said soccer is for prima donnas and rugby is a man's man's sports. I mean, so, guys that play rugby. Oh. Okay, but what does that make you if you don't play soccer or rugby? <laughs> me. <laughs> and me. So I played soccer. So then they all decided that soccer they were... Soccer guys are hot too. So then they decided that they were going to teach rugby to the boys of the school because that's how you raise a boy in their mind. So all of the guys who attended this school played rugby. Now fast forward, rugby, because... It's so popular in Uruguay to this day. It's super popular, Mm -hmm. but I'm not sure if that's like from the school or not. I don't think, but now it's huge in Uruguay. Okay. So the old Christians club was their team. That's who they played for the club. And they started winning a lot of rugby tournaments and championships. They started traveling to Argentina, to Chile and other countries, and they were really making a name for themselves. Um, So this is why they were actually traveling to Mm -hmm. Chile. They were attending an exhibition for rugby. Okay. Um, and the boys were pumped because they were on the U.S. dollar, too. The U.S. funded them for this. And they were it's going to be like a vacation for them. They were getting money. Um, they, they weren't playing a match. They were doing an exhibition. So it, was just, it wasn't for any sort of competition. They were just showing their skills. So they weren't worried. They weren't nervous. They were more excited. Wow. And they were going to get a vacation out of it. So out of this, they even got a Fairchild 227 aircraft that brought them to Chile. So And it was donated by the Uruguay government. That's how highly respected this team was. And they're such young men. Yep, 17 to 27 years old. So this aircraft had about 40 to 50 seats on it, um, and they told them, if you can fill all of these, it would only cost $40 per person, So, which is crazy cheap. So they start telling all of their friends and family, do you want to come with us? We only have 15 of us. We need to fill all of these seats to make it cheaper. Who do you know that would want to come? It'll be fun. Let's go party. I don't know if they said it like that, but in my mind, they did. So... It was easy for the guys to fill the remaining seats, obviously. Who would not want to take this chance at essentially a free vacation? So, as I mentioned a bit earlier, this flight consisted of only 15 players, ages 17 to 26, and a middle-aged woman named Mariana. She was not (gasps) associated to any of the guys whatsoever. Um, She just thought it was a cheap ticket and decided to join. She heard the news that they were asking for people to come, and she was like, I'll be there. 
So then there was also uh, Liliana and Javier. They were a married couple with four kids, and this was their 12-year anniversary trip. So they didn't know any of the guys either. Was that the doctor? No. So back to the crash. Inside of the plane, all of the survivors at this point were super cramped. I mean, you know how small and cramped those, especially that last plane that you and I were on. Do you remember that? Okay, so this is an even smaller one that only has 50 seats. But I mean, that's probably not as bad when they're freezing. Yeah, and they kind of removed all of the um, seats and stuff, but still, like, the stench that was in it because they were using the restroom in there. Oh, God. Um, half, you know, the wings were exposed, the tail end, so it was even smaller and super cramped, right? So outside, they had made a suitcase barrier for, like, one of the missing walls. They just sacked, uh, stacked up chairs and suitcases to kind of keep from the snow, snow mm-hmm, being mm-hmm. able to come in. The elements. But the snow and the wind was so bad that every few minutes a suitcase barrier would just fall to the ground and they would build it back up again and it would fall again. So several survivors were actually suffering with severe frostbite and they were pretty sure that they were going to like lose limbs. They were hitting and punching each other to keep like the blood flow and circulating to their extremities. The boys did find a few bottles of wine, and several of the passengers start gulping it down, thinking if they got a little drunk, it'll warm up their bodies. And the boys were also, like, celebrating because they thought in their mind that they were going to be saved the next day. So the boys were also making blankets out of the seat covers, and although it was thin, it was all that they could do. Because remember, the passengers were not packed to go to a cold vacation. They were going to freaking Chile, right? Well, I just hate that they think that it's, like temporary i know so when night struck the screams from the wounded wounded would intensify the the worst screams came from senora mariana who was traveling to her daughter's wedding in chile she was still trapped underneath all of the seats because both of her legs were broken in her arms so she couldn't help herself at all when the boys would try to help her every slight movement of the chairs would result in her screaming in excruciating pain so the boys were like i don't know what to do i don't know how to help her and they would cry because she would be crying they wanted to help her but they thought they were making it worse by helping her so it was just like a double-edged sword so one of the passengers nando prado he was actually in a coma and he was straight he was straight up unconscious so he was just laying in the corner and they were just kind of waiting for him to wake up so and he would stay in, in a coma for five days. Now, this is the guy that's going to play a pivotal role in this. Oh, yeah, that's So right. just remember him. And his... Never mind, I'm going too fast. So when they wake up from the first night, the strong go and check on everyone, but they realize that in the night, three, of, three more of their friends had passed away, including Senora Mariana. So they started an operation just to keep busy. Roberto, who's like the leader at this point, was like, okay, let's clear more space in the aircraft so we can have more room to lay down in the night because a lot of them were sitting upright, sleeping or standing. Um, He said, all of the wounded, stick your limbs in the snow to act as an ice pack. The strong, let's start moving the dead bodies away from the snow and let's remove the seats, the luggage and the, the debris and bring all of that outside. Ready, set, go. So they had a game plan. I, I wouldn't trauma... I know. So remember that guy from earlier that I said had a steel pipe removed from his stomach? Yes. So he comes up to Roberto the next day. Roberto, Roberto, can I ask you something? Oh, God. I think there's something wrong with my stomach. Yeah, dude. You're... Roberto's like, sure, how can I help you? He takes off that white shirt and removes it from his waist, and the six inches of his intestines is hanging out, and it's bleeding, and his stomach is not closing up or showing any signs of closing up naturally. So Roberto checks out the wound. He says, I think it would be our best bet if we just try to stick it back into your stomach to let that skin heal over it. And the boy's like, okay, I trust you, Roberto. Do what you think. 
So Roberto was like, I need to disinfect this wound somehow first. So he starts looking around. They don't find any rubbing alcohol, anything. So his best bet was to use cologne. So That's what I thought. So the cologne had a lot of alcohol in it. So they spray the intestines with this cologne and stick it right back in it. (laughs) And that's how Old Spice was formed. (laughs) I'm kidding. (laughs) So yeah, he had a smelling good intestine shoved back into his stomach. Well, I mean, I'm assuming that most intestines don't smell good. Mm Mm-mm. So next we had Susanna. So this is Nando's sister. And she's fading in and out of consciousness and on the verge of death. In here was also Liliana Methel. Remember, so she's the girl that was married to the other guy that they were going to celebrate their Mm -hmm. 12-year anniversary. And she's in her 30s, okay? So Liliana actually became sort of like a nurse for the wounded. She was kind of motherly. Um, Mm -hmm. She would follow the nursing students and keep... um, like give them supplies that they needed she would patch people up she would fetch snow she would just be there to support they said that she would like you know play with their hair and just make them really feel uncomfortable and encourage the wounded like keep fighting keep hanging in there like you're gonna be fine um so she played a pivotal role for a lot of people in this so when uh liliana went to go check on the co-pilot the one that had the bar in his chest he had passed away as well so she would make her rounds to see how people were and he had died so now All of the crew members are dead except for the maintenance man. However, he wasn't much help at all. He kept peeing all over the place and peeing on himself. And he was like very negative. He told them, he's like, well, there's no signal flares for or emergency supplies. Um, He said all the important stuff that they needed was at the tail end of the plane, which is no longer um, attached. So it's gone. He was like, but don't worry. Search and rescue should be on their way. I just know it. So just, you know, just hang tight. Why is he peeing everywhere? Because he didn't want to go outside. He was just, like, peeing all over himself. That's what the report said. I'm like, uh uh-uh, that's some head trauma, too. (laughs) (laughs) Or maybe he wanted to keep warm. Shit. Golden showers on this plane, honey. Uh. So, Marcelo, the team captain of this group, was the least optimistic. And I don't want to say not negative, just more of, like, realistic. Right? You. No, you're negative. (laughs) He is like, look, we cannot be 100% certain that they are going to come and rescue us. We can't just rely yeah. on that. We need to make sure we are alive and well for as long as possible. So mm-hmm. he starts to make an inventory of all the foods, the drinks, and the supplies that he has so that they know, you know, where is this? And he would also divvy out the rations as well. Oh, my God. When you start calling them rations. Right. So come to find out, they had three bottles of wine. So this is like the next day, right? But they started off with eight. So <gasps> they drank five the first night. So five of them. Sounds like me. I could have done, I've done five in one night. So I mean. Oh, I have witnessed. They have few bottles of liquor. They have eight bars of chocolate, jars of jams, some little bitty breads. And that's it. This is not near enough for them, for 28 people to survive. There's no way. There's snow. Right. So, so he told them, listen up. If we're going to make this thing last, if we're going to make it last, we have to try to do what we can do to survive and like not be selfish. Right. So when I give you your ration, you take it and we've got to do what we can to survive. And I always forget how long you can survive without food. I know you can survive. I think it's 10 days or 14 days without food. Right. Well, you can survive longer without food than you can without water. Water. Mm -hmm. Water is five days. No, it's longer than that. Seven. I don't fucking know. So, on there every night they were given a small piece of chocolate so like think of like a Hershey bar just like a block and a deodorant cap of wine and that's it oh god I bet that tasted horrible right so they also needed a way to get water 
So I'm sure you're thinking the snow, right? But so there's plenty of snow, yes. And they do use the snow, but the snow came with a lot of problems too. So they were putting these huge chunks of snow in their mouth and like literally it was like giving them frostbite. Yeah. It wasn't easy to do. Um, it was painful and it was so cold. So then they would like smash it up into like ice cubes, but then they were like breaking their teeth. Um, they just wanted to be able to drink a source of water, right? Yeah, it just there's... was, it wasn't convenient or efficient for them to just suck on ice. Could they start a fire? So I'm going to get to that. So they put a bunch of snow into a water bottle and would like shake it up until it melted and became water. So they did that for a while. But then Roberta was like, no, 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 no. We can't do that. You're exerting way too many calories by shaking it up and like uh-huh. being aggressive. We need to preserve your calories and like all that good stuff because they were eating little to nothing all day. So one of the guys was like, oh my gosh, I have an idea. He remembered that inside the seats that they had ripped was aluminum lining um, and some metal. So he would make little bowls, uh, fill it with snow, and then the reflection of the sun would melt it so they could drink out of these little dishes. So they had people designated all day to collect snow, put it in there, and then distribute it into water bottles to keep. Wow. So the main issue, though, with the snow was the quality of the snow. So they would have to wake up early with, like, the fresh snowfall and collect that snow or, like, walk a distance to collect the snow because all of the snow around them was covered in blood, yellow from urine or other feces, or it had chemicals and oils from the plane dripping all over it. So they're like, we can't risk it. Like, we're going to have to trek. But if we go too far, we are not going to be able to find the plane. So that was where the issues came. Because you would think, oh, they have plenty of snow. But no, it was all destroyed all around them. So on the fifth night being stranded, Nando Pareto wakes up from his coma. And this is pivotal because, like I said, he plays a huge role in this, okay? What about the intestines guy? He's fine. So Nando was a great asset to this team. He was tall and timid, and that's what everyone knew him as. All of the other guys on the team were, like, pretty buff and super athletic, you know, like, meaty. And that's how you Uh, kind of think of, like, rugby players. But Nando made the team not because of his athleticism, but because of his pure determination and drive. He had the mindset of an athlete. He was smart. He was strategic. That's why they loved Nando. So Nando wakes up from his coma, and he immediately has, like, blurred vision. He said he remembers, like, all these blurred faces around him. And his friends are screaming, Nando, 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 wake up. Are you okay? And his first thought was, where's my mom? My mom. Is my mom okay? Where is she? My sister, my sister, where is she? Where is she? But he was whispering this to them because he was so weak and lethargic and the team didn't have the heart to tell him that his mom was dead and that his sister was on the brink of death. So they just let him rest and pretended like they couldn't hear him. Oh my God. So eventually when he did regain his strength, he stood up and he was like, where's my mother? Where's my sister? And he's like running all over the cabin, like looking, searching high and low for them. So his friends like calm him down. They pull him to the side and they're like, we're sorry, buddy. Your mom, your mom passed away. So when Nando immediately is hit with like this wave of emotions, he just breaks down. He's sobbing. He's crying. His mom was his best friend in his whole world. Um, He wished it was him instead of her. So when he says this, he said, well, what about Susanna? Where's my sister? The boys say, she is alive, but she's in very, very bad condition. We think she has internal bleeding and she's bleeding from her skull (gasps) in her ears. She needs your help. So Amanda immediately stops crying. He regains his composure. He's like, I have to be strong for my sister if we're going to get through this. I'm not walking out of this huge ordeal alone. She needs me and I'm here to help. So he rushes over to Susanna and helps her get comfortable and takes care of her. 
God. Another night passes. Um, and nighttime was very difficult because everyone was crammed inside that small place. Um, like some were sitting up, others were just piled on top of each other. If one person moved the entire, like everybody had to move. So like if you adjusted your leg, everybody had to adjust their legs. So nobody got good sleep. And the guy that's peeing on himself. So besides like the frigid temperatures though, like the comfortability made it super difficult to get a proper rest. So in the morning, they are woken by a loud and unfamiliar sound. They were like, what is that? It's not the wind. It's not the snow. What could, what the fuck could it be? Yeti. And the boys venture outside and they see a helicopter. The rest of the passengers run outside. They're screaming. They're crying. They're jumping up and down. They're waving their arms. We're here. We're here. We're here. Help us. Help us. Save us. And they're like climbing on top of the cabin, jumping up and down. And it was kind of a house divided at this point because there was people who were very optimistic and others who were not. And they were like, well, don't get too excited. They don't even see us. Why did they not dip their wing to let us know that they spotted us? That was like a signal. Oh, I didn't know that. Um, there was like, there's no way that they saw us. The plane is white. The snow is, night, is white. There's not a chance in hell. Don't get your hopes up. But the optimistic ones run inside the plane, grab red lipstick and red nail polish, and they started painting SOS on the top of the airplane. Huh. Some of the other folks started grabbing like metal scraps and they were holding it up to reflect the sun towards the plane mm-hmm. and like get their attention. And sure enough, the plane dipped its wings to acknowledge that he has seen them. So everyone starts crying. They're bringing out the wine. They're celebrating. They're cheersing. They're praying. They're hugging. They're dancing. It's like a huge celebration. I have a feeling this is going to end terribly. However, one hour passes, two hours pass, three, four, nighttime comes, no rescue. Why? The, the, so they acknowledged that the plane, like, he saw them when they circled back around. The snow was so bad he couldn't find them. It was just a white field because that's how heavy the snow was coming down. Why did he circle around? Well, because, you know, like, so he, because there's a lot of trees and stuff, too. So they had to be mindful of, like, the propellers and, like, the stuff. So Where they would land? Mm-hmm. Right. So he could, the, the pilot could not find them. So Nando recovered really quickly. Remember, he was the one that was in a coma, and he spent the majority of his time assisting and taking care of his sister. Nando started going stir crazy, though, and he started telling people, I got to get out of here, guys. I'm going to go look for help. I can't just wait for them to find us. I've got to make it happen. I need to get my sister to a hospital. Mm -hmm. I've already lost my mother, and I'm not losing my sister. So his friends were like, dude, you do not have the strength to climb these mountains. You have only been eating very little the last seven days. You're going to get lost. You're going to freeze to death. There is no way in hell we're going to let you go. No way, no how. We care about you, dude. Nano says, okay, you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to cut off a piece of the dead bodies and I'm just going to start eating that. How does that sound? They're in the snow. They're not rotting. It's protein. Do you think he saw his mom? That was going to be my question. Yeah, so I'm going to get to that too, though, because that's a, it started a lot of controversy. Like, well, you're not eating my mom. You're not yeah. eating my sister. So we'll cover that too. So the guys kind of ignore him, though, and they're like, okay, he lost his brain cells. Something's really happening during this comatose period. No. So the guys did think it was a great idea. Didn't, I, did I just have a stroke? I don't the guys know. did think, though, that it was a great idea for them to attempt to find help. They start reading a map that they found in the cockpit, and they figured that Chile was just west of them, and perhaps there were some villages close by. They were like, guys, I think if we get past this mountain range, we could find some villages just on the other side. I think we should attempt it. Let's go for it. Nando's like, yes, yes, yes. Let's please do it. Let's go west. Yes. Love this idea. Hell yeah. 
So the boys huddle together and choose their top-tier athletes to make this expedition. What about Ricardo? Is he still walking around not knowing where he is? Yeah, he's fine at this point. Okay. So they want the guys who are the biggest and the strongest to take on this adventure. So early October 17th, the guys, the four guys set out on their adventure. The boys strapped cushions to their shoes to help them walk in the thick snow. Mm -hmm. They were also on a mission to find, like, the tail end of the plane in hopes that they can find, like, batteries flares or radio signal for help or like the black box isn't that in the back of the plane yeah and that's missing too all of it all the pivotal parts of the plane that they need were missing so the boys set out and would walk an hour they would take a break walk another hour take a break walk another hour take a break it was cold snowy and they didn't see any sights of anything they were like we need to turn around or we're going to lose we're going to either lose like we're going to freeze to death or we're going to lose sight of the plane daylight so when they returned to camp, this depressed the absolute shit out of everyone because they were like, if our toughest guys can't even handle this, who can? What are we going to do? When the boys returned, everybody just looked defeated. They looked haggard. Like, it was just bad. Morale was super, super low. And we're over a week at this point? Yes. We're on the eighth day. On the eighth day, Nando wakes up in the middle of the night to find his sister cold and blue. She had died in his arms that night. So again, on this plane, he lost his mother and now his sister. By the ninth day, the survivors were really starting to deteriorate. A lot of them had lost hope. They sat in the same spot all day, almost in just like a foggy haze. You could hear moans. You could hear groans, cries throughout. The morale on this plane was crashing and going down, down, down. Finally, the passengers were like, if we are going to survive this, we're going to have to eat. We have to. Easier said than done, right? Mm-hmm. So they thought, you know what? We are going to have to eat the bodies of our friends who passed. I would they start are, with the fingernails. They are preserved. Ew, they are frozen. Nothing's rotting. We've got to do it if you want any sort of chance of survival. So they were going back and forth with everyone if they should or shouldn't do it. They wanted to ensure everyone was on board with this because um, people had loved ones here. They were also conflicted because a lot of them are strict Roman Catholics. This was definitely a no, 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 no. However, someone said, if I died and my body could keep you alive, I would want you to eat me. Well, that doesn't help. So let's decide right now. I ain't eating you. Them tattoos are probably lead poisoning. Okay, there's not lead in them. But ink. Okay, so so one by one, they went around to get a consensus from everyone. And all of the survivors at this point agreed that it was the best thing to do if they wanted any chance to, to live. Right, because that's like that's hard. It's like, well, you're not eating my mom, you're not eating my sister, um, but they came together and they're like, look, if we do want to survive, this is what we have to do. So they went over to the dead bodies, covered up their faces in snow, so mm-hmm. they wouldn't have to look at them, and they started cutting off the flesh with the shards of broken glass. <laughs> so they would take the strips of meat and put it on the top of the plane to dry it out or like dethaw in the sun, and told everyone, you know, if you want any have at it there will be plenty and they would just go up to the top of the plane so for the first day though nobody went to the meet they were just waiting around to see who would go first and roberto was eventually like screw it i'm starving i'll go first so he grabbed a piece of meat gagged it down and washed it down with some water proceeded to keep doing that over and over again a few of the other guys kind of took his lead and began eating some of the body parts as well however some people were like eh I don't know the effects of, like, cannibalism, so yeah. let's just see how Roberto feels in the morning, and we'll just let him be kind of the little guinea pig, honey. So you Roberto woke up the next day feeling fine, 
no side effects, nothing. So more and more people began eating the human meat. So the boys found out that there was like an active search going on and a rescue team hunting for them. How? Um, th- so they were able to. And, uh, they were, they were able to get a radio. Mm-hmm. Not they wanted the radio for the purpose to outreach, but they could hear okay like, little radio signals. They so couldn't talk. They on couldn't it. talk, and that's what they wanted it for. But they could get like a uh, like a station. So this gave them a lot of confidence. They were like, "Oh my gosh, there is an active search out." People were excited. They started to cry. Morale's going up. They're screaming for joy. However, on the radio, on the 10th day, they got a signal on the radio, and they heard that the search and rescue efforts had been canceled due to no leads or no results. Come to find out, the search and rescue team was looking in Chile only, and their plane had crashed on the border of Argentina and Chile. So they weren't checking Argentina. They were only checking Chile. So the boys were sobbing, they were crying, they were so defeated. They were like, what do we do? Do we tell the others? Let's just not tell them so we don't ruin their hope. You know, hope is all that we have at this point. However, some of the boys were like, no, they deserve to know. We need to tell them. So the guys announced this devastating news to the survivors. Everyone is pissed. They're sad. They're defeated. They're devastated. They had been given so many false hopes. And they said to their team captain, um, Marcelo, after hearing this news, completely changed. He was just empty in the life, and his eyes were, like, gone. He really? was just, like, defeated. So, um, so the news of the search and rescue ending lit a fire under some of their asses, though. And they were like, look, we have to make shit happen if we want to get the fuck out of here. The next day, they sent three more guys on an expedition to find help. The three guys they would send would have to, like, break every few feet just because of the snow was so deep but the goal was to get as high up on the mountain range as possible so that they can get a lay of the land and figure out where the fuck to go so the higher they go the air gets like thinner and thinner they're having a hard time breathing so they are just hoping and praying for the best night falls and the guys were like there is no way we were giving up now and heading back so they decided to like rough it through the night and sleep on the mountain in the snow so the guys like bundle up they are like trying to do the best they can to keep warm they endure the snow throughout the night and the next morning they had to take their clothes off and wring them out because they were drenched from the snowfall from mm-hmm. the night before um, but they made it through the night and they continued on their trek oh my God. so when they looked down to see the plane they became very depressed because they weren't very far from it but they could barely see it at all so they're like if we cannot see the snow the plane from up here there's yeah. no way that those helicopters would ever be able to see us so they found out what happened with that exactly so when they get to the top of the mountain, they find the wing of the plane in the seat from one of the seats from inside um, of the plane buried in the snow. And when they got closer to the seat, they noticed one of their dead friends was still attached to the seat. Yeah. Up on this mountain, they found a total of six dead bodies on the top of it. So now everyone is accounted for. And as sad as this was, the boys just decided to take the clothes off the dead bodies they found and bring it back to camp for everybody to keep warm. So they head back to camp, but one of the three guys ended up breaking his sunglasses. So by the time they made it back to camp, he was practically blind from the sun's reflection onto the snow. Sunglasses were pivotal for them because of the white. Yeah. Yeah. And so the sun like kind of gave him like blind, like he wasn't blind, but it was like blurred and it lasted for weeks. So also his feet were so numb and frozen. By the time he got back to the group, he noticed that his shoes weren't even on him. He was <gasps> barefoot. He had lost them somewhere, but they were so frozen, he didn't even know. In purple. So when the three guys returned back to camp, the other passengers were really upset and that they didn't turn 
uh, return with any good news, they start questioning them. Well, did you even make it to the top? Did you find any batteries? You didn't find the batteries? Okay, well, what did you find? Well, they found six dead bodies. Like, right. They second. were like, great. Just great. The three strongest guys come back empty-handed. We're never getting out of this place. That would be me. So the morale declined again. And that night, they decided to burn, um, like, a piece of wood or a piece of, like, uh, I think it was, it was a Coca-Cola carton or something like that. Okay. And they began to barbecue the human meat for everybody to enjoy, to kind of take their minds off things. Enjoy is the word you chose. I mean, I'm sure. Would you rather sur- die or survive? Die. Bye. That night, they feasted. <laughs> <laughs> Did you write that? They feasted, honey. By the 17th day, morale was higher. The group was getting more and more stronger from eating the human remains, and they had a pretty good system in place. No shoes were inside the plane to keep it as dry as possible, and they had a game plan on who cooks the food, who makes the water, who they pick, who pick their, uh, they picked their strongest guys, and they decided to give them as much food as possible to bulk them up and get them as tough as possible so that they could go on their final expedition for safety and rescue. So these guys were super excited. They had a process. They had a game plan. Morale went up. They were very eager to get this game plan in action. So there was a boy by the name of Roy who was awoken in the night by a rumbling, vibrating sound, a sound he hadn't heard before. He wakes up and he's like, what the fuck is that? What could that be? It was getting louder and louder and louder, and it sounded like a humming or like a rumbling noise. He assumed it was like another helicopter, so he runs outside of the plane to check. Suddenly, he gets the wind knocked out of him. Boom! When he's able to come to, he's waist deep in snow, and the entire plane and inside of the plane is covered in snow. The suitcase wall was knocked down, all of the dead bodies were buried in snow, and all of the uh, sleeping survivors were now buried in a wall of snow. There had just been a massive avalanche. So the snow is super compact, and Roy starts digging and digging to save his friends and the other passengers. He starts um, seeing hands sticking out, people screaming, help me, help me, help me. Some like couldn't even breathe, and they're suffocating from the weight of the snow and like the other people that are kicking and stepping. Everyone is in fight or flight mode, screaming and begging for help. One by one, he's digging people out, and they too start to shovel snow out of the way so that they can help their friends. So uh, the ones that were pushed towards the top, or pushed towards the bottom, were biting the toes and the feet of the people at the top to let them know that they were beneath them and to help them as well. So fucking chaos. Like, bitch, don't grab my little toes. No, I'd be helping them out. So finally, they dug out their team team captain, Marcello, but they noticed he wasn't moving. And they could tell instantly that he was dead. And so this was the guy who kept them calm, kept them motivated, kept the morale high. He's gone. And this shattered the team. So this is the part where the human human nature kind of takes over. So one of the boys starts digging and he hears, save me, save me. It's uh, Gustavo. And he said, Gustavo, is that you? He said, yes, 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 it's me, Gustavo. Gustavo Nicolette? No, 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 no. Gustavo Zerbino. And the boy moved on. That's not who he was looking for. A lot of the guys were just trying to help their friends and family first. And they weren't paying attention to the people that they didn't know. So thankfully, though, Gustavo Zerbino would be rescued and fine, be fine. Uh... So Javier and... uh, Liliana, the the couple, the mm-hmm. for their anniversary, they were also passed up. 
Um, the couple had just celebrated their 12-year anniversary. They didn't really know anybody. They yeah. weren't a huge priority for the people to save. So Javier was screaming, like, I can't breathe. Or, no, he was screaming, I can't breathe. Don't worry about me. Save my wife. She's under me. She needs help. Help, help, help. Please, don't worry about me. Save her. So, But by the time the boys got Javier out and pulled uh, Liliana, she was dead. But Javier lived. Javier lived, and he was slumped over in the snow, just bawling his eyes out. They had made it so far. So when they finally got around to everyone, it was brought to light that they had lost eight more people because of this avalanche. Many of the survivors had wished they would have died in the avalanche. They said it would have been quick, it would have been easy, than trying to have to endure all this fucking craziness. Like, I just wish it would have taken me out. What do you think happened? Like, what is it that kills them? Is it, like, the impact? I think it's the impact. I think it's, like, they couldn't breathe. That snow was so heavy and compact that it's just, like, a... It's like you're suffocating. Yeah, but that wouldn't be... And these Quick. people are already so weak. They're brittle. Uh, think about all that kind of stuff. They're weak. They're brittle. They're stepping on each other. So I think it could have been a lot of things. So don't, this sucks. So within minutes of this, a second avalanche hits them. Jesus. But this time, it just swept over the top of the plane because it was so built up with snow mm-hmm. from the last avalanche. So it kind of just blocked it, and it just kind of went over the plane. So it wasn't as severe, but still. So the, uh, although the second avalanche did not kill anyone, they were trapped inside of the plane for a few days now until the snow started to, uh, to melt to free them from being trapped inside. So the survivors inside were like, listen, we just survived this massive-ass avalanche. Things are only going to get better. We just have to get up. We need to get help. We just need to wait until summertime, and it's just right around the corner. Summertime is different there, or there are summers, what they call mm-hmm. it. It's like when it heats up. So How someone- is that different from now? Well, the time, like the month, because oh. this happens in November. So someone joined the discussion and said, the harsh winter does end around mid-November, which <laughs> is in just a few weeks. We just need to pick like our expeditionaries, bulk them up, and send them on a trek in about two weeks when the snow starts to melt and the sun comes out. Ew, two weeks. So Halloween comes around. It was Carlito's 19th birthday, and they made him a, like a little snow cake, and they gathered around to sing him happy birthday. Stop. And they just tried to make it, you know, the best situation as possible. They also started preparing the meat from the newly dead bodies to eat for dinner that night. Delicious. Which, oh, yeah. So the first November comes, and, and the gang climbs out of the plane, and they start planning the expedition. The first on the list was Nando. He had shown his strength through uh, a lot throughout this, and he was very timid. He was shy, but now he was well-respected and highly looked up to by his efforts during this tragic event. Um, they said he was very courageous, selfless. Um, when the suitcase wall would fall in the middle of the night, Nanda, would, without hesitation, would be the mm-hmm. first one to jump up and fix it, and he would do this over and over and over again every single night. Wow. The second guy on the expedition list was Numa uh, Norkati. He was well-loved and respected. He was known as being very kind and genuine. He was very small in stature, but super muscular and strong. The group was like, if Nando and Numa are in this group, we're going to be just fine. They're strong, smart. They're not too emotional. They're going to get us out, like, out of here. So they felt very confident in those two. So the next person was Roberto Canessa. So he's the medical student that I keep referring to. He was very good at problem solving, and he was like a strategic thinker with great ideas. Um, he made a hammock. He made bowls. He was an innovator, but he was also very anxious and had a bad temper. He was extremely cu- uh, stubborn and like would cuss at people all the time if they didn't listen. He was like one of the more volatile passengers, but um, and he w- but he was the only one that could really like think 
and like put a game plan together mm-hmm. and when when he would have these like outbursts the only person that could calm him down was nando so like okay well they might be a good match together so okay. lastly there was antonio Vizentine. he was self-centered but very strong and brave so these are the four guys that they chose to make the trek to get help because these four um were were getting wait because these four were doing the expedition they were getting like the good meat that was left from the bodies so the other passengers were left to eat the liver the heart the intestines and the kidneys and they would actually cut off sheets of fat and dry them in the sun and form like a little crust and then they would eat that so the only thing they didn't eat was the lungs the head the skin and the genitals so the dick and the puss wait the skin i thought the they skin. would eat the skin. i mean the fat the fat they would they would not eat the skin they would eat the like fats, the like fat the tissue hair? from the skin oh yeah so the only things they did not eat were the lungs, skin, head, and genitals. Later, they would run out of food, though, and they would be forced to eat the brains. Fuck me. So from consuming these bodily organs and meat, constipation, severe constipation set in. So the group was terrified that their body was going to explode from the bloat. So you know how, like, those little African children that have those really bloated bellies because they go so long without eating and then they eat and it just bloats them? Just anyone that doesn't, Right, yeah. exactly. But this was severe. So they tried everything. They were even sticking things up their butt to try to jumpstart the poop flow. That sounded weird. <laughs> and they were, like, swallowing oil that was, like, scraped <gasps> off fat to try to use that as a laxative. But nothing was working. Ooh. Some of them developed very severe bloody hemorrhoids. Like, it was <gasps> bad. They even had bets set to see who would poop last. So they, they were trying to make fun of a shitty situation. Or lack of. Or lack of. (laughs) But my thing is, um, like, the blood consumption and what that can do. I know. I don't know. Oh, yeah. That could. It make you so sick. Exactly. So the last person to poop didn't poop for 34 days. Holy. Fuck. Because you shit three to four times a day. I do. So once everyone pooped, everyone was having explosive diarrhea. It was so bad. Roberto had came out in the middle of the night and he was like, holy fuck, I got a shite. So when he did, he noticed there was five or six other people just shitting their brains out in the snow as well. So, shart central. And then they would have had to have like a designated area. Yeah, it was. Because of the snow. uh Uh-huh. It was a sharty party. Hashtag sharty party. One of the guys... Arturo was mentally and physically deteriorating. When the sun was out, he would stare off in the space and scream, Here comes the milk cart! Open the door for the milk cart! The guys would shake him and like he would come to, and then they just noticed he had a very high fever. He was in and out of consciousness and just shaking uncontrollably. Um, November 15th comes around and Arturo passed away. Do you think that had to do with the shit they were eating? Yeah, and like... I, it had to. It, for sure. But this wasn't it. A passenger named Raphael was losing his mind and deteriorating quickly and kept randomly saying, who wants to come with me to get some bread from the shop real quick? It's just right over there. Let's go. Let's go. Come on. But he passed away too shortly after Arturo. Do you think that's like stuff they were subconsciously thinking? Thinking or hopeful for. And it's kind of like when people are like delirious out in the desert and they say that they see this like tropical oasis, but they really see like the mirage or whatever. I think that kind of stuff was settling in, setting in. And they're not giving their body enough nutrition to properly, you know, function. So this had this whole group in shock. They were like, we need to speed this expedition up or we're going to keep losing people. We can't wait the two weeks. 
So the group of four venture out to get help. I don't know how the fork they did it, but they were able to find the tail end of the plane and they saw the radio that they needed. But they were like, how in the fuck are we supposed to use this? There were so many wirings and buttons. The guys were just like, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. Mm -hmm. They were able to turn it on, but they didn't know how to get a signal or like show a signal out of it. So the boys were able to get more clothes and luggage and they did, uh, they found um, some snacks. So they were excited about that. They also found lipstick and foundation and smothered it all over their face to protect protect them against the sun, like as a barrier. Oh, you know what I didn't think of? What? It's so dark mm-hmm. at night. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And they would just have to sleep. But it is getting warmer and more bearable. So no, in the middle, I know, but like it would be pitch black at night. And also wolves, bears. I couldn't find anything about any animals. Oh. So in the middle of November, summer did, in fact, start, and this caused more trouble, though. The guys' were, lips were completely trapped uh, and bleeding. They were cracking from the sun. Their skin was burnt and peeling. They were severely sunburnt, and once the snow started to melt, they were feel for, fearful that the plane would start to slip off the side of the <gasps> mountain because the, the snow yeah. was holding it up. With the summer heat came a big issue. The snow was no longer preserving their food source, the dead bodies, oh, and it no. started to rot. They were forced to eat the older pieces of meat um, and some of the rotting body parts even. They were trying to bury the bodies as far down in the snow as they could, but the sun kept melting and melting and melting. One of the four guys, Numa, was physically drained. He became very sick and withered away to a skeleton. They decided to give him something sweet, and they gave him toothpaste to eat, and they said it was like a dessert. But eventually he passed away too on the trek. So now we are down to three expeditioners. They start climbing the summit, and it's taking way longer than expected, but they eventually do reach the top, and they see mountains on mountains on mountains. However, they go, wait, look at that one over there. It's green. There's no snow on it. We need to get there. So even though, like, it was, like, habitable land, um, they were like, okay, look, if it's habitable land, there has to be villagers over there. There has to be somebody over there. And that Mm -hmm. just goes to show how drastic this weather changed. You could have snowy mountains and then lush green mountains. So they were like, we need to get over there. So the guys were very careful, though, not to overdo it. They wanted to run. They wanted to just get there as quickly. But they knew with, like, one sprained ankle, one broken bone, one fall, one tear, anything would be, like, a death sentence for them. So they were moving quickly and efficiently. Once they traveled a distance, they came across a fresh stream of water. They look past the stream and they're like, is that moss? Oh my God, there's plants, there's berries. And they saw their first sign of vegetation in months. And they were at day 65 at this point. The boys were ecstatic. They started eating the moss, eating the berries. They were drinking the water. They were dancing. They were having a great time. And they saw this valley that they referred to as paradise. The snow had completely stopped and they stumbled into a rainforest almost. There was lush vegetation. There was birds, uh, waterfalls, Flowers. They started bawling their eyes out. Um, they rested a little bit just to take it all in. And then Roberta was like, wait, look, what is that over there? Are those fucking cows? Uh-uh. Nando concluded, if those are cows, someone must own these cows. There has to be ranchers or villagers nearby. Let's keep going. Let's keep going. So they stumble across an empty soup can. So the boys are like, oh, my God, there has to be civilization nearby. Civilization nearby. Somebody made it out here. Someone lives nearby. There must be a tourist or something. So then Nando sees this tree, and it looked like it had been chopped right down the middle. Mm -hmm. So he knew people were actively working on this land. So they were excited. 
So on the 10th day of their trek, they see a man on horseback across the big river. So it's a big river. It's not just like a little stream at this point. It's a huge river. Mm-hmm. They start screaming. They're waving their arms. But the ranchers like said in an interview later that they thought the boys were either terrorist or tourist. <laughs> they're like, uh, who are those weird Neanderthal looking men over there? So they just kind of like waved back like, hey, and left. But the boys weren't completely bummed. They just stayed there. They're like, look, we're going to take shifts sleeping tonight. I don't want to miss them if they come back. Sure enough, the next day, the rancher throws a rock over the river and had like a little piece of paper attached to it. Okay. And it says, tell me what you want. <gasps> uh-huh. And there was like a little writing utensil attached. And Nando wrote, and there was a, he wrote a lot, but I'm just going to summarize what he said. Oh, said, did he have so much? He said, I come from a plane that crashed in the mountains. I'm Uruguayan. We have been traveling for 10 days. Our flight has 14 people. We do not have food. Where are we? Can you help us, please? SOS. So they tossed the rock back over to the guy. He read it. The rancher signaled, like, I got you, and left. A couple hours later, a man comes to the rescue on their side of the river, and they were given food, clean clothes, bed, water. They fall to their knees, and they are just praying. They are so excited. They give the guys these huge hugs. They're just like, oh, my God, we made it. We really made it. So then the police show up, and they told them the tale of the, like, how they survived, but they did not include the part about the cannibalism. They were like, I don't know how they're going to take this. Like, are they going to believe us? Is this going to be like, are we going to get in trouble? I mean, they just didn't know. So the boys did the best they could to help the search team locate the plane, but the helicopter could not find the camp. So they're like, look, one of y'all is going to have to come with us. And Nando is terrified of planes now, obviously, but he was like, you know what? I'm going to suck it up. I've got to do this for these people. So he gets on the helicopter to lead them to the group. And once they come to the location, they cannot land the helicopter, though. They could only hover over the group because it was, like, on the side Mm -hmm. of the mountain. So they could just hover. So the real doctors jumped out of this plane, rushed over to the injured and the needy. Some of the stronger ones uh, joined NATO and the rest inside of the uh, NANTO and the rest of the inside of the helicopter. Like, they put down, like, the... Uh Uh-huh. And then they went up there. And then the ones that weren't able to move, the um, doctors were assisting with them. So there was a second helicopter that arrived shortly after that brought more medical supplies, food, water, blankets, and all that good stuff. They are rushed to the hospital, and most of them had lost 50 to 100 pounds. They were skin and bones. They had frostbite, broken limbs, infection, sores, you name it. It was horrible. The doctor asked each one of them, what was the last thing you ate before the, the paramedics came? And the group admitted to eating, like, the flesh and the dead bodies. I mean, they would have found it out. Right. And the doctor could tell that they were kind of, like, scared. He was like, no, 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 no. Like, you were in survival mode. I just need to know this from my studies. Like, when I'm, you know, giving Mm -hmm. you medicine, I need to know what is going on inside your body. A priest actually came over to the group to, like, help them with their mental state and, like, pray Mm -hmm. over them. And he reassured them that what they did was not a sin. It was an act of heroism. Um, what about the intestines guy? He's fine. I'm so worried about him. He's fine. He ate his own intestines. He did? No. So many of the survivors' families <laughs> met them at the hospital. So Mr. Prado, who found out, so he, at, so this is Nado, Nando's, um, father. Uh-huh. The one who lost, and so his mom and his sister were on it. So he shows up and that's when he realizes that he has lost his wife and his daughter. And he was very nervous because he was like, oh, my God, I look defeated. And Nando's going to think that I'm upset. But he said the minute that he saw his healthy son, he was just overjoyed. It was a wonderful reunion. But, like, the doctor said it was very emotional because now they only had each other. Yeah, but 
they so could you, at least mourn together. Yeah. Here's the shitty part. It got leaked that the survivors had eat had to eat their dead bodies to survive, which doesn't sound too bad, except that it was getting out of hand. Newspapers were stating that the avalanche never happened and that the strong killed the weak in order um, to eat them and use their bodies. So they were like, there is no way this group survived an avalanche. That just didn't happen. They killed these people and to eat their bodies. Okay. So photos leaked of the campsite and you could see like the dead bodies. Uh-uh. You could see remains. You can see limbs all over the place. Um, and it was on the front page of all the major newspapers. The group wanted to return to Uruguay via train because they were so scared of the flights. But because media outlets were tracking them and like rushing to them, they were forced to take another private plane back home. Ironically, this plane was uh, delayed a few hours because of severe weather. So they're all on edge. But eventually they landed safe and sound and they were all seen as international heroes when they returned. People were waiting for them. People had flowers. They had gifts. They had so, you know, interviews were coming. They were just ecstatic that they were alive. So just to summarize this, obviously it's like somewhat of a happy ending. So 29 of the 45 passengers survived. Um, I'm sorry, 16 of the 45 <laughs> Okay. Every year, the survivors meet up on the anniversary of their rescue. Now, a lot of them have died because this happened in the 70s. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the ones that are still alive meet uh, meet up on December. I think it's December 2nd just to have like a little reunion. That's the day before Bella's birthday. Yeah. So that's the story of survival, which it reminds me because me and Josh just started watching this new show called Alone on Hulu. Have you heard of it? Yes. But and I it's kind of like Naked it. and Afraid. They just take these people that love the wilderness, like love um, being out in the open. Oh, it's reality. It's reality, okay, but it's good. And they know things about plants. They know how to survive and they drop them off in the middle of nowhere. So they have one that was like Mongolia, they have one in Patagonia, and your goal is just to survive off the resources of the land. So, but there's camera guys there. No, they video it themselves. They have like a little GoPro that they have to set up and video all of it. How do they charge it? I mean, they give them that kind of stuff. So oh. you're allowed to bring 10, 10 items. So you can bring like fish hooks. You can you cannot bring a fishing pole. There's like a list of things that you can and cannot use, um, but. They're able to, anyways, they have all this, like, you can pick a tart if you want, but you can't do food and water. Um, I know, so it's, it's insane. But anyways, it kind of reminds me of this, but even these people, they don't make it that long. Like, some of them bounce out within, like, seven days, but it is insane, and it reminded me of that. So that's why I wanted to do this story, because I was like, I want to find one that kind of resembles that. I would have been out the minute that I couldn't find a fish to eat. I mean, well... (laughs) A fish? Or something or, to eat. A lot of them eat fish or mice. Oh, on that show. Mm-hmm. I just... 75 days? 75 days. Wait, but one article said that 29 of the 45 passengers survived. Well, but I said in the uh, Maybe initially. The flight, yeah, because remember, like, five got sucked out. Did But I said 16? Yeah. I did, didn't I? Well, regardless, uh, most of them died. Most of them died. So that's sad. But yeah, um, what did you think of this story? I don't know if I want to get on a plane. Well, I was just so thankful that you did this after our trip because our plane had problems too. And it, it was delayed because of the Oh, weather. shit, of a tornado. <laughs> You're right. Okay, well, I'm going to, in the caption, I will 
put the correct amount of survivors. So it's either 29 or 16. Which are very close uh, numbers. <laughs> well, minus 10. Okay. Well, awesome. Well, that's it. Hope you um, loved it. Rate, and review, subscribe, please. Yes. Someone wrote a mean review on Reddit. No, he didn't. Oh, on Reddit, yeah. Like him. <laughs> All right, guys. Thank you and good night. And yes, Jesus, I'm tired. Be a Patreon. And oh. we'll have another episode for you on Thursday. Oh, yeah. Fuck. Okay, bye. Love you. Good night.